0: That story of Mary in Bethany, anointing Jesus, and the chorus of the critics that arises—it's told in at least three of the Gospels, if not all four of them. It's one example, a curious one of three interesting examples that surround what I think is the central passage in our in our text this morning. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 26. A passage I've entitled, Come to the Table, and I think the Lord's Table, as we have said before us, one of the reasons we waited from last week to celebrate this table this week is because of this passage that we were going to be in. And I think, while it's it's toward the middle of the passage, it is the centerpiece of the passage. And it's surrounded by three different episodes of the disciples' failures. One of them I just talked about. And there'll be two others besides. But three different episodes where the disciples, those who who believed Jesus, those who followed Jesus, those who trusted Jesus, yet three times in this brief section in chapter 26, three times they fail him. They fail him significantly. And also, as we're going to read, we're going to read verses 1 to 46 of Matthew 26. We're going to read through the whole section. I want you to watch for those episodes of disciples' failure. You know why? I want you to watch that because you fail too. You say, "Well, oh, good, this is going to be really encouraging. We're going to point out the fact that we fail this morning. Yeah, we we kind of need to because we'll easily pretend that we don't. But stand there with Peter and James and John and realize that, With them, we too fall short. But three times as well, I want you to watch for them, three times as we read, there is a mention, there's a reference to, other than the actual episode of the Last Supper, the table, the Passover table, other other than that central reference, there's three other allusions or referrals to that table. That's what makes it the centerpiece Of the whole section. So, surrounded by our human failings is what the Lord does for us that we remember in this table. So, with that set up, let's read in Matthew 26. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 831. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the Olivet Discourse of of chapter 24 and 25, then he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house, in the house of Simon the leper, this is within that two-day window now, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. You... Always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. There's a window of opportunity here. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. They prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after a blessing, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said, "You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after that I am, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee." And Peter answered and said, "Though they fall away, they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away." Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times." Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, Sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to sorrowfully and he, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Look, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, then Judas came. So here, surrounded by the disciples' failures, and and there were three of them. There was the failure to support Mary. I mean, Mary's among the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and they're the ones who criticize. The very ones that should have supported, encouraged, applauded this sacrifice, this extravagance of faith, they're the ones who criticize her. They miss the boat. They follow the erroneous worldly view, opinion, judgment, of Judas. And they join in the chorus of the critics. As you, as you read this in the Gospel of John, you find out that Judas was the instigator. If you compare John and Mark's accounts of the same instant, and Judas instigates this criticism and the others easily join in. There's the fact that although Judas is the one to betray him, all of the disciples will deny him. They will all fall away. Thirdly, the, the disciples like us are weak in the flesh. They cannot stand. They cannot stay awake. And yet, three times I said there was also an allusion to the cup, right? Let's see if we can find them again. Link number one, uh, th- he says in verse two, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up. This Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered. The Son of Man will be the Passover lamb. There's link number one. Link number two, he tells. He tells the disciples to go into a certain man and and tell them that the teacher says in verse 18, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover. He's not just saying he's going to have the Passover dinner that night. He's going to keep, he's going to fulfill the Passover that night. And then when he prays in the garden while the disciples sleep, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup that he has just referred to at the table, the cup of his blood poured out in their place. A third reference back to the table. So the table is found, the Passover is alluded to throughout. There's a lot going on about Passover here that we've got to talk about. But first, I want to, us to, if we're going to think about coming to the table, if we're going to think about come again to Jesus, and that, that seems a little odd to us. We might think about a come to Jesus moment of, as that moment of faith. And of, of that something that I do, something that I believe in, at one time, and it's done. And yet we come to this table over and over again, and what we're doing there is we're coming again in our faith. We're reaffirming our faith, and we're we're acting out our faith again that, yes, I have personally for myself come to this table. I have received Jesus as my Savior. I have taken in for myself individually and personally his death in my place, his resurrection to give me life. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of my sin. And taking that cup, that's what I'm saying. I'm coming again in that same saving faith. And we need to do that over and over again. One of the reasons we need to do that is the reasons that surround this presentation of the table. The fact that we also will fail. We will jump out and we will follow the world's ways of criticizing others. We will will not be faithful ourselves. We also will find that even when our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. And we will not do that which our Lord has asked us to do. So the criticism of the mayor, we talked about it briefly. A few lessons if I could. Don't Don't let good works This should have been sold. This should have been given to the poor. Don't let good works get in the way of extravagant worship. You know, we might be subtly enticed. At a time when faith in Jesus is criticized, but doing good for others, well, that'll be applauded. So we'll be subtly enticed to do good without reference to Jesus. It's fine as long as you don't overtly bring Jesus into the matter. People will be happy for your service, happy that you want to serve the poor in one way or another. And Jesus, you have to you have to imagine here that helping the poor, helping those who are vulnerable in society, is something the disciples assumed. So there must be a pattern there that they saw in Jesus and his teaching of them, because they assumed that that would be the right thing to do. And yet there are times. As Jesus points out here, the poor you'll always have. You'll always have that opportunity. But there are times when there is a, a call to an extravagant act of worship in faith that is a window of opportunity for you that you do not want to neglect. Beware of joining the chorus of the critics in a rush to pass judgment on what other people do. You know, our, so, our social media culture way overvalues our own opinions. Or we think it does. Maybe a better way to say that is our social media culture gives us the opportunity to way overvalue our own opinions. We've got something to say about everything. We've got something to say about all kinds of stuff that go on. We've got something to say about what other people say. And a lot of times, I'd be better off to not have something to say about what other people say, to not have something to say about what other people do. You know, Because I've got, you know, we have different gifts of the Spirit and the body of Christ, right? People are gifted in different ways. Well, I've got the gift of criticism. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. I'm good at that, okay? I can see the wrong in something, I can see what's missing. Somebody else will see, wow, that all looks wonderful. And I'll see, yeah, except for this. That's my gift. It's really helpful. It's a, it's a real strength in pastoral ministry, let me tell you. I fall on my face constantly. Puzzled, finding out why other people are not grateful for the things that I'm able to point out. But sometimes we need to um, we need to remember that judgment and discernment spoken into the lives of others needs to be done in ways that are first of all, to them and not to others, and then are for them to help them, not to hurt them, to invite them back into the light rather than chasing them away further into darkness. Asking the right questions of people rather than assuming is often the first step in being able to provide right answers. Be careful about joining the chorus of the critics. It doesn't mean that your life verse should be, judge not lest thou be judged. We often will use that to hide from the light ourselves, won't we? There's a time to speak into the lives of others, but to them. And making sure it's with the Lord's counsel rather than contrary to how Jesus himself would evaluate. The disciples flat out missed it. And we would do well to talk to God about others before we presume to talk to others for God. Be careful about this this um, chorus of the critics that is so easily to join. The second failure is the is the disciples as a whole are going to deny them. Now Peter is focused on here. It's interesting. Peter's Peter seems to want to make all the more assurances that he would never fall away, and perhaps that's why he's the one that ends up being singled out. Uh, that that that. that when Jesus says others are going to fail Peter says well yeah th- those those guys might yeah they don't they they're not made of the stuff I'm made of right easily again we look we look at others and we lift ourselves up in comparison to others and Peter says well they might fall away but not me really Peter well don't give Peter too much of a hard time Peter is the only one that other than John, that shows up at Caiaphas's palace where Jesus' trial is being held. Where are the others? They're probably too afraid even to be there. And, And Peter has good right to be afraid. I mean, Jesus has just been arrested. Won't they arrest those who were his close followers as well? It's not surprising that Peter would be afraid. What's surprising is his overconfidence in himself that I can't fall away. I remember a time at a pastor's conference years ago where the speaker asked, asked us, asked across the room, he said, how many of you believe that you could be tempted to fall into this particular kind of sin? And about half the guys in the room raised their hands. He says, the guys that didn't raise your hands, you're the ones I'm worried about. Those of us who think it would never happen to me, I would never fail in that way. I would never fall. You don't realize your own depravity. You don't realize your own fallenness. And That's what I say when I say don't pretend that we don't have a problem. We are invited by our circumstances into failure. We are sometimes, like Peter here, intimidated by our circumstances into failure. Whether whether being chased to failure or led to failure, we don't stand a chance. Because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we will fail, even as the disciples do. There's a a verse Paul, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Also in Galatians chapter 6, keep watch on yourself. When, you've, when you discover somebody else is falling, when you're seeking to restore somebody else, keep watch over yourself. You're capable, very capable of doing the same thing. You see, others, others' failures do not tell me something about them. They tell me something about us. We have a propensity for sin. Others' falls show me our shared weakness. The enemy would use that, that failure He would use that shame of our sin in order to destroy us. But at at this table, the the Lord's cup of his blood is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It reminds us that your sins have been put away, that in Jesus we are righteous, not by our best efforts, not by Peter doubling down and trying harder, but because of what Jesus was for us. Thirdly, the disciples are, are, are like us. They're weak in the flesh. They're not strong enough. They can't even stay awake and watch with Jesus and pray. At a time when Jesus needs their support, the disciples need their sleep. The fact that disciples are not strong enough is the very reason that, that there's a shift in Jesus' prayer. Did you catch it? First he says, if it, is, if it be possible, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And then after going and waking them back up, he returns to his prayer and he says the second time around, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. And I think there might be a a play on the failure of the disciples. Our sin is the reason that that cup cannot pass from him. He must do this for us. We cannot stand on our own. Our victory comes not by trying harder, but through Jesus taking the cup of judgment for us. Our sufficiency is in Jesus he is what we are not. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. I think I have that on the screen as well. Jesus became for us the wisdom of God. You could connect that back to the misjudgment, the criticism of the disciples. Well, they lack wisdom. They lack God's perspective on the matter. Sometimes an extravagant act of worship that makes no other sense is exactly what you ought to do. Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. He does for us what what the world would have called foolish. Righteousness. He is righteous for us. Sanctification and redemption. He gives us that new life. He gives us the power of the risen Savior in us by the Holy Spirit in order to do what we do not have the strength on our own to do. His grace is enough not only in salvation but also as the enabling power of the Christian life. He's become that for us. He defends the woman's extravagant worship and corrects the disciples' faulty perspective. When Satan would sift Peter like wheat, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. And when the disciples can't stay awake, Jesus will take the cup for them. He has become for us. That's what we celebrate at this table, that what we are not. See, don't pretend. Don't pretend that you don't have a problem. I do have a problem, that's why I desperately need a Savior. We are broken people in a broken world and we desperately need our Savior. And we embrace that. We will confess that. Because to to deny that I could fall, to deny that I have a problem, to deny that I am weak in myself and need Jesus, to deny that is to say that I don't need the gospel. To deny that is to say that I didn't need Jesus to die for me. That's for you people. That's not true. All of us need our Savior. We don't pretend we don't have a problem. Rather, in the midst of this flurry of human failure, all surrounding this episode of the table, Jesus brings the disciples back here. It's a table they've been to before. They've celebrated Passover before. They ought to be doing this every year. They ought to have the the things that are said, the things that are recited, they ought to be in their memory. It's a table they've been to. But it's possible to come to this table not realizing what it really means. This table tells us one of the reasons we celebrate it regularly, we celebrate it every month, is because we need to come again to the table. We need to come again to Jesus as our Savior. Now I want you to turn back in Matthew 26 to verse 26. I want to focus on that section, verses 26 to to 30. Surrounded by our weakness, surrounded by our human failure, Jesus brings his disciples here. It's a Passover table. They're, and as they're eating, Jesus takes the bread, they're eating the Passover meal. Now, Passover is an annual celebration, an annual fest- festival that's meant to remember Israel's redemption out of Egypt. It occurs in Exodus chapter 12. Let me give you just a few of the highlights. Israel's in bondage. They're slaves to Egypt. And through a series of judgments, those ten plagues, God redeems his people out of Egypt. He exercises his authority against the false gods, the the, the idols and the demons behind them that are the spiritual power of Egypt. And God exercises judgment over them one after another. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn reminds us of our death in the firstborn Adam. And it's escaped, that that plague is escaped by those who would hide themselves under the blood of a Passover lamb. That when they would take that lamb, when it, when it would be killed in the place of the firstborn and its blood applied to the doorpost, then the firstborn in that household would be spared. The Passover meal symbolized a personal deliverance of judgment from death and the start of a new life. Because Passover wasn't merely the escape from this plague. Passover was the night that God would redeem them out of Egypt. Passover not only celebrated this deliverance from bondage, but it anticipated a new life in a new inheritance that God would bring them into. They were to celebrate Passover each year to remember how God redeemed them to live new, as God's covenant people. That's Passover, okay? Now, this Passover that Jesus celebrates, all of that is in the background. In fact, Passover, the redemption out of Egypt, is huge throughout the whole Old Testament. And when Israel forgets Passover, that's when things really begin to unravel for them as God's people. They forget Passover. They forget God's redemption of them. They begin to go their own way, do their own thing without reference to God and his redemption of them as his own covenant people. That's when things fall apart in the Old Testament. So now, with all that background of God's redemption of his covenant people into a new life that he has for them, with that background, Jesus adds new meaning. He says the unleavened bread represents his body, his life without sin, without leaven. His life which is given for us, and the bread is broken and given to the disciples. His life is given for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He who was unleavened, without sin, God made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My righteousness is not in what I do or don't do, it's in Jesus who died for me. The cup of wine. is. It's the color of, brill- of, of blood. We use red, not white. The wine there or the juice, the fruit of the vine, is the, that, that color of blood is to remind us of his blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. All the other Old Testament sacrifices and all the other sacrificial blood that was shed, it all pointed to one thing. It pointed to the Son of God who would die as fully man, who would die in our place, who would die for humanity. The sins of all of us would be placed upon him, and that's why he dies. That's why he's separated from his father. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies in our place. He's separated from God in our place. He says, this cup of wine, this is the blood of the covenant. Do you know there's blood of two covenants? Did you know there's the blood of the first covenant? In Exodus 24 and verse 8, Moses sprinkles all of the people at Mount Sinai with blood. He sprinkles blood over the, over, the, over the group. Aren't you glad we don't do that today? Ew. But they have just said all that you have said in the law, all that you have said we will do, and they're bound to do it. That was a blood of the covenant that bound God's people to obedience that they would not fulfill. And yet there's a blood of a new covenant. It's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 9 that sets prisoners free. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 31, 34, where, where where the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. The old covenant of law defined sin. It said, this is sin, and this is sin, and don't do that, and you must do this, because to not do that is sin, and if you do this, that is sin. The law very carefully and fully defined sin as contrary to God's character. It didn't set us free from it. The old covenant defines sin. The new covenant removes sin. There's sin and iniquity. I will remember no more. It is removed from them as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so the Apostle Paul invites believers to come to Jesus' new covenant Passover. He says this is the Christian life. This is where it's lived. It's lived around this table. Now I don't mean we're all going to huddle here. We're going to live the rest of the day here. I mean that we live We serve our Lord. We go out in light of what God has done for us that we remember at this table. That Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed, has been sacrificed for us. It's by Jesus' death that we are free from the bondage of sin and death. That's our out of Egypt into a new inheritance. So Paul says, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 5.8, let us therefore celebrate the feast Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We will not live leavened any longer. We'll live unleavened as Jesus, like that unleavened bread of Passover. Why? Because Christ our Passover is sacrificed for. Israel needed that ongoing reminder of Passover. They needed to remember God's redemption into a new life. We need that same reminding. That's why we do this. Don't let this become rote. That's why we're spending time here this morning. Don't let this become something that we do regularly, fairly often, too often. We easily forget. We need to keep living in the freedom of forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus. Why? Because the enemy will use your sin against you. He will accuse you inside your own head. Do you hear those voices that point out your sin? And do you t- try at times to justify yourself against those voices? Well, I'm not really that bad. And maybe that points you towards criticism of others. I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm not like so-and-so that I know. And we try to lift ourselves up, maybe even by pushing somebody else down. The best way that to answer the enemy is with truth. Oh, I do those things. I've done that things. And I could be ashamed of that. Yes, it, but there's this. Jesus knows all about that. And I don't have to be embarrassed to come and introduce his presence because of that, because that's exactly what he died for. He took all of that and he placed it on himself so that I am fully accepted before God in Jesus, my Savior. Don't try to play the devil's game of bargaining. Well, it wasn't really that bad. It wasn't like this or that. That's why we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. They're removed. Bring it right out into the light say, that's exactly what I did. And yet, Jesus died for that because he loves me. That's what we celebrate at this table. We need to come back to this table to renew in our own minds and our own hearts that you are fully forgiven and accepted before God, not because you're behaving, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We need to remember that. We need to soak in that. Come to it the table again to nullify Satan's accusations of guilt that echo around inside our own heads. Come to the table. You know, after they came to the table, and Jesus reminds them of his body given for them, of his blood poured out for them for the forgiveness of their sins, and he says, I'll not celebrate this table again. I will not drink of, the, of, of, the fruit of, the, of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. He says, I'm coming back. He's going to return. And he's going to be with them in his kingdom. And there they'll celebrate the table again with all the fullness of his meaning from first Passover to second Passover. From Exodus out of Egypt to new life in Christ. All of that will be included in that feast that we will celebrate with him in his kingdom. So we too, when we celebrate this table, what? We proclaim his death for us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, until he comes again. And we'll live in it. So just like that first night in Egypt, they, they s- celebrated that Passover meal both. Thankful for God had delivered them from the judgment that was passing across the land, but also anticipation of the new life, the new inheritance that God had before them. So it is with us. We come to this table grateful for his forgiveness, that he has passed over us, that the judgment that we would deserve will not be upon us because it was on him. And also this table reminds us that Jesus is going to celebrate this with us again, all together in his coming kingdom. And so, in that hope, they went out. And it says, as they went out, they sang a hymn. Now, we don't know exactly what verses they sang. You know how it is. Sometimes you don't sing all the verses of all the songs. But we know that it would have been somewhere between Psalm 115 and Psalm 118. That was the norm for Passover in the first century. And so let's just consider a couple of those verses as we prepare ourselves to come to this table. Psalm 116, the first two verses. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call on the name of the Lord. We're going to come to this table. We're going to lift up, again together, the cup of salvation. And and perhaps you're in one of two places this morning. Perhaps you've not come to this table before. Perhaps you've not really come to this table yet in the terms of coming in faith. And you could join us today. This could be the day when you come to the table, the table that the Lord has prepared, the table that celebrates that he died for you to forgive you. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I invite you to join me in that prayer, receiving for yourself his forgiveness, a full acceptance before God because Jesus died in your place. And then you can come to the table. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that. You have believed in Jesus, and yet there's things that echo around in your heart that you're not sure he really forgives you of. You feel like this is still between you and your Savior. You can lay that down here. There's nothing, there's nothing in this life, in our sin, that can get in the way of Jesus' salvation. His death is sufficient for all of it. And You can leave it right here when you come to this table today. So as those who are serving are coming forward, let's just pause in prayer. And first of all, in our hearts, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, let's, in our hearts, come to that table of forgiveness in Jesus. Father, I want to pray right now, especially for anyone here that maybe is not sure that they've actually trusted in Jesus themselves before. Truly, that he is the reason they are fully accepted before God. It's not about being good. It's about believing what Jesus has done for us. In his death for us. Setting us free from our sin. His rising again to give us new life. Father, if there's someone here. That that's where they are. They want to claim that salvation in Jesus right now, today. Today. Lord, perhaps they'd put up their hand that we could pray for them. We could rejoice with them in that forgiveness received. And Father, also there are those this morning that are troubled by guilt, are pressed by sin, that the enemy would continue to beat them up with. Oh, Father, would you help us to lay that down this morning? Knowing that we can be freed from that, first of all, the guilt of it is gone because Jesus died for it. And because the guilt is gone and our our Savior has died for that, that we can be free from it. We don't have to walk there anymore. It's not about our being strong enough. It's not about the strength of our flesh. It's it's, it's about the strength of our risen Savior. And, Lord, we stand today in him. And we'll claim, we'll rejoice in that forgiveness in Jesus' name. And all who believe said, Amen. Amen.